Be- because we, the society, it's so easy for even us who've been in the movement a long time to keep thinking Greek. Because our culture is like that. Our philosophies, everything is, goes against that. And God is trying to keep things really simple. So we'll understand it. We keep trying to make things hard. So I want to give you something today that's a, a, a tool to understand the scripture. It's very simple. And I'm going to go through three, maybe four things. But there's a whole bunch of those. And when you start seeing them, you realize how easy it is to figure out what God is actually saying and to convey it to other people. Hebrew thought process. Well, it's best illustrated in Hebrew poetry, which is not where we're going today. But that's the best picture and illustration. And the reason is because that thought process continues outside of poetry. It was a, that was one of the things I really did not like. You know, like in junior high, poetry. You've got to memorize poetry and get in front of the class. Yeah, my greatest fear was having to get up in front of people. Here I am, right? <laughs> Seriously, it was. I would actually not go to, I would be sick on those days and not go to school. And the worst was, was when you had to get up in front of people and, get, and do poetry. And here we are. Okay, in Hebrew poetry, there's a balance, this is really important, a balance of form and sense. It's called parallelism, or Hebrew poetic parallel. Now, thoughts, ideas, concepts, and so on are presented in two or more parts. Part one states the thought or the idea. And then there's logic that comes in, that you can start figuring things out from the information. And you draw a conclusion. Now, you could be right, but you may not be right. But you could be. You need part two. But the thought, the concept, um, uh, may be intentionally incomplete on purpose. It's a setup. Yeshua taught like that, by the way. He would set his disciples up for part two. He'd give a teaching, and it was like, well, well what about, and part two's coming, all right? Uh, sometimes it was ambiguous on purpose. Then part two comes, and the very same idea is brought up again. Only it's reinforced, there's repetition, uh, added some variation, uh, the unexpected sometimes surprises, but it completes the thought and makes it clear. There's clarity. Now, your logic can only come to one conclusion after that. The entire book of John is, is that structure, by the way, where at the end you have only one choice to make. Okay? Yeshua is God in the flesh. It's the only choice there is. There isn't another, another one to make. And he was thinking in these Hebrew concepts. But it can be a surprise, because to come to that conclusion is not easy. That's not normal. That has never happened before. Part one can be incomplete. Something's missing. It raises a very difficult question. But well, that's stating the answer. I raised the question, but it's the end of the question is asked. Which I'll give you some examples in a little bit. But, not, but the, the answer is not given. There may be a hint or a possibility given. But, you know, I could teeter on this. But part two, when you hear it, you go, oh, yeah, now, I should have known that. Oh, yeah, now I get it. I, I see it. I get it. Paralleling, paralleling of thoughts, corresponding of ideas. Now, modern poetry, where we live today, modern poetry is expressed in rhyme or parallel of sound. Rhyme is parallel sounds, all right? And rhythm, which is parallel timing. You know, da 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 
There's a, there's a timing, a rhythm. Uh, it's a rhythm of sounds in a pattern. That's the kind of poetry we're familiar with. In rhyme, there is phonetic agreement. The sounds agree. In rhythm, there is metric agreement. The beats agree. Okay, so that's, how, that's where music comes in, and so on. In contrast, in Hebrew poetry, this is fascinating safety belt, there is neither sound parallelism or of rhyme or time parallelism of rhythm. There's neither. But there is parallelism of thoughts, ideas, and concepts, which become extremely important. Instead of rhyming of sounds, Hebraic thought and song is marked by rhyming of thoughts. The thoughts rhyme, not how they sound, but the thought itself. There's a rhyme. It, it connects. Part two of the parallel adds to, it clarifies, it deepens, it brings in emotions, and it draws a conclusion. Sometimes there's even wordplay. And, and humor. Things get kind of funny. The book of Proverbs, not time today, but there's some really funny stuff in Proverbs. You read that, and, and you go, am I reading that right? It is just plain funny. But it makes the point. You get everyday life. It's everyday, everyday life, okay? There's some funny stuff that Yeshua said. You know, the, the persistent widow knocking on the door of the judge's house. <laughs> when you hear that whole story, there's humor in that. It's like, here she comes again. Oh, man. But the people hearing it saying, I know who that is. Okay, she lives in our village. Okay, and, and that's how she is, too. And guess what? She gets her way. It works. And, so we, and then they laugh about it. But the point is made. The persistence in prayer. Sometimes in that wordplay, and sometimes in the humor, that's the best way to memorize something. You remember it. But the amazing thing about this concept is this. Okay, it can translate into any language. Now, think about that. It can translate into any language there is in the world, which is not true of other languages. It's extremely difficult to translate poetry from one language to another. Really, really hard. English to Greek. Okay, I took Greek and survived. Okay? But, but if you're trying to, to make it into English poetry to Greek poetry, you have the number of, the number of syllables. The, the, the name of the, of the thing that has to sound like the English one. I mean, it's almost impossible to do. It, it, it doesn't work. It, it, it's, it's so difficult. But in Hebrew poetry, okay, it can be reproduced into any language in the world without losing any of the thought, meaning, or emotion. That's the only language that does that. Can you believe how, how, what a great idea God had when he gave us Hebrew I mean, that's the only language it works in. So the, the, all the gems and jewels in this book can translate into any language clearly. You don't, lo- you don't lose it. You don't lose it. It's, 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 it's amazing. Now, I say all that because that same thought process, that way of thinking, world view, okay, is also seen in teaching. In teaching. There's many, many, not time today for a lot, but there are many Part ones and part twos. And they're all through the scripture, cover to cover. Um, now, a reminder. Say, well, why'd they do that? Okay, guess what? No printing press back, way back then, okay? No Bible bookstore to run down and get your, 
the favored version or your hot off the press new new book. No, no, I couldn't do that. Uh, some people just plain couldn't read. Well, how then were you to understand the history of your country and its heroes? If you if there were no books in print, you know, some were handwritten. You know, how, how expensive is that? Well, the, the synagogue had a set of scrolls, but you would go there to read those. You, you, don't, you couldn't afford them. Well, in this poetic thought process, it's easy to make it into a song. Now, how many of you, a couple of you may remember this. Uh, this was 1955, okay? <clears throat> I might need to be on it. Where's Jan? Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee. You know what? Hey! Davy Crockett, the Ballad of Davy Crockett. You t- they tell the story in a song. You don't even have to read to get the, to get the story. Many, many, many stories are, are like that of heroes and so on are done in song. But when you use this thought process, without the, with the song is better. But but without the song, it's it's a poetic instruction with a flow. To it, and you remember it. You can memorize it, and the differences and the similarities, and then the whole thing. <clears throat> okay, I'm gonna, what I want to do today is give you a teaching tool to help you to do it yourself. When, instead of having to look up stuff in books and everything else, you can look at things and figure out most of the meaning of it because it's simple. We're going to start with a three events in Yeshua's life. Now, we started the service by reading a, a, some from the back part of the book of John, John 20 and 21. Well, John basically says, you know, Yeshua did a whole lot more stuff than we wrote down. I mean, a lot more stuff. But we chose to wrote down what would bring, that it shows that he's the Messiah, and that by believing in him, you will have eternal life. That was the, that's why they selected what they did. But in doing that, there's a whole bunch of part ones and part twos. Seems to me that part one would have been enough, I would think. Uh, so why did they do it that way? Let's take a look at the calming of the storms. We have two. It seems to me that if you just do one, Yeshua can calm a storm with, with, with one word. Most of his miracles, most of his miracles were done for the sake of his disciples, that they would see and understand who he is, who he is. Other people got benefits, but very few were done with big crowds. Most were done, many healings were, okay, Peter, James, John, come with me and the parents of the little girl. The rest of you stay out here. It was a, sm- it was a small group. But it was to show them who he is. Because they were going to write this. Okay? And, get, and impart all of that to us. Who is he? That's, that's the important question. Take your Bibles and t- turn to Mark chapter 4. For the first one of these. Mark 4. This is so simple and so easy to do. You can do this at home on your own and have fun. Except you have to have better glasses than me. Mark 4. The first calming the storm, verse 35. And I'm going to share a few thoughts as we walk through some of these. Okay, Mark 4, 35. On the same day, when evening had come, okay, first thing we get is a time of day, sunset. Okay, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. All right, those of you who have been in Israel understand this. Okay, that's a term for changing provinces. The kingdom of the Galilee and the kingdom of the Golan had a border at Capernaum. That's where Matthew's tax booth was. Big income. Matthew walked away from a lot of money. 
But that was a border crossing. You have one side is Jewish, you go into Gentile territory. Uh, the kingdom of Philip, the kingdom of Herod. But, but the other side doesn't mean you go all the way across the lake. You can go 80 feet and just you change sides at, at the border crossing. You paid taxes there too. All right, so that's that. Now, verse 36. Now, when they had left the multitude, by the way, these guys are professional fishermen. They know what they're doing, all right? When they left the multitude, they took him along in the boat. Okay, he is in the boat, <laughs> as he was, whatever that means. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm, it's a windstorm because of Mount Arbel, the canyon. A great windstorm arose. And the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. This is not good if you're in the Navy. When the boat is filling with water, not good. So Yeshua, what was Yeshua doing? He was asleep on a pillow in the stern. Now, that's a picture, by the way. That, is, he, is he worried? Is he, no, the other guys are. In fact, they, they, get, they get sarcastic. Uh, don't get sarcastic with Yeshua. Don't do that, all right? He was asleep. It's like, I can see this now. Andrew says, Peter, wake him up. <laughs> no, you wake him up. No, you wake him Thomas, no, you. I'm not going to wake him up. You wake No. Somebody woke him up. They said, teacher, here's the sarcasm. Don't you even care that we're about to perish? Mm, that was not good. Don't you care? We're all, we're all going to die. You don't even care. They were full of fear, okay, full of fear. These are fishermen. This was, this was a serious storm. They were sinking. Then he arose. I like this part. I think he wiped his eyes. He arose. And he rebuked the wind. And he spoke to the sea. And he said, Shalom. Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Okay, from a Navy perspective, here you have this huge windstorm. The boat's filling up with water; it's going to sink. They're they're fearful. She was not worried. Why? He's got it under control. No matter where he is, it's under control. It may not look under control, but it is under control. Why? Because this is a teaching moment. A teaching moment. And he, he, they said, what do you, I'm not sure what they thought he would do at this point in time. But he spoke. But he, he spoke. Who did he speak to? Look at this. He rebukes the wind. And he speaks to the sea. And he said, Shalom. Be still. The wind ceased like that. It was a great calm. That term great calm is, uh, if you're a water skier, it's better than that. A great calm means there wasn't a ripple. It was better than glass. Nothing is going to move. It went from extreme to extreme by a word he spoke. He speaks a word, and it goes from this nightmare, we're all going to die, to glass. A great calm is better than a calm. Okay, a great calm means nothing moves. Then he asked them a question. They had a question. Teacher, don't you care? We're all going to die. He said, i got a question for you now. Why are you so fearful? 
when he was going to die. How, here's the question. How is it that you have no faith? Hmm. If Yeshua asked you that, how would you answer? Hey, we're smart enough not to try to answer that. Because all of a sudden they're looking at, at with one word, shalom. Okay, then now there's this glass. It's like, you know, we should have known that. We should have known that. So what do you think he did? I think he went back to bed. What do you think they did? Yeah, these are sailboats. Okay, now in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and now it's like, okay, Peter, now what? Row, row, row. Couldn't he have left a little bit of wind, maybe? A little bit of wind for us? But the teaching moment stirred, remember this is part one, stirred the question. And here's, there was a couple of questions. It, it was, um, how is it you have no faith? Number one. But then when he went back to sleep, it was like they have a question. Verse 41. Who can this be? That's the question. That's the teaching moment to, to get them to ask the question. Who can this be? That the wind and the sea obey him. Wait a minute. Who is it that the, the, the forces of nature, the weather, obeys when he speaks? Who is that? Good question. Because they just saw it in action. It's like, <clears throat> well, you know, only God can... Well, no, well, no, let's not jump to conclusions here. There's got to be another answer to that question. It can't be that. Well, yeah, God has... What? I don't know. So the question comes up. Who can this be? Who can this be? And his question was, how is it you have no faith? Not a good answer. Okay, part two, Matthew 14. Turn there. And I want you to look at the differences as well as the similarities. Matthew 14. Verse 22. Immediately, Yeshua made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. There's that again. They're going the other way this time, to the other side. We're going to come back to where they were because we just spent the 5,000 and we know where that is. Okay? So, so uh, he, made his, he made his disciples get into the boat. And go before him to the other side. While he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. He's not in the boat. They're in the boat. He's not in the boat this time. That's a difference. Now when evening came, okay, time of day, sunset, he was alone there. But the boat, he was alone. The boat was now... Here's the contrast. In the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Here we go again. Same place. Same situation, but a difference is, you sure was not here this time. Uh-oh. Now what? Well, last time he spoke a word, and he, now he's not even here. What's going to happen? What's he doing, by the way? Did you see what he's doing? Are you reading this? This is so simple. What's he doing? He's praying. Who do you think for? What do you think for? One of the versions says he can see him. In the dark, you can't see him unless you're somebody more than just a person, than a man. But he was praying for them. Let's see what else happens. You all know the story, but a lot to it. Now, okay, our second time, we have a time frame. The first time was evening, they launched out. 
Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Yeshua went to them walking on the sea. I'll just walk. Okay, it wasn't I'll meet you on the other side. No, I'm going to meet you in the middle. How are you going to get there? I'm walking. What time was this? The fourth watch of the night is between 3 and 6 a.m. They'd been out there maybe eight or nine hours. They're having a tough time. They're having a tough time. Only this time he, he's, he's, he's walking on the sea. Okay, that's new. Now, when they saw him, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! It's a ghost! Um, and they cried out for fear. That means they yelled, they screamed. They cried out because of, of fear. Okay, what's worse than being um, on a small fishing boat in a big storm and the boat's sinking? Being in a small boat and it's sinking in a fishing boat in a big storm and seeing a ghost. That's a little bit worse. Because legend had it that just before you died, a spirit would appear to you to take you wherever you're going to go. And there they see it. Oh, we're all going to die. Look, okay. Remember when Zacharias was in the temple? And the angel appeared to him on the right side of the altar of incense? The same thing. He thought he was going to die. He says, no, I have a message for you. I have good news. You're not dying. But because you didn't believe me, you're not going to be talking for a while. Anyway, different story. But that, there's a part two in that one too. But okay, he, they cried out for fear. But they're crying out for fear. Immediately Yeshua spoke to them, saying, now I love this. Again, do you, don't you see humor here? He said, they're, they're sinking. They've been out there nine hours. They're sinking. He says, be of good cheer. Come on, give me a break. Is that what you would say? Be of good cheer. Why? It is I. Do not be afraid. Don't worry. I'm here. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? So this is part two. <clears throat> and Peter answered. And he said, be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you. Okay, who else could it be? What are the other choices? Alice. Mm, why do you say if? Mm, not, not good, Peter. If it is you. <clears throat> Command me to come to you in the water. The Lord said, okay, come. Oh, man. Can you imagine Peter thinking, I wish I hadn't said that. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Yeshua. How many sermons have you heard about Peter being in trouble? He let go. Commend him. He turned loose of that boat. He got out of it. He let go of it. Okay, he started off on the right foot, so to speak. <laughs> okay. However, when he saw that the wind was boisterous, when can you see the wind? When there's water in it, okay? That's what he's seeing in all this. He saw that wind was boisterous. He was afraid. Here's what fear does. He was walking on the water. But here's what fear does. Fear, fear takes away faith, okay? He was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out. He's crying out again, but this time it's a prayer. Lord, save me. Keep that one handy. All right? I mean, we have all these flowery introductions to prayers that sometimes there's not time for. God of heaven and maker of the world. No, sometimes it's, Lord, save me. It's a good prayer to pray. Yeah. He keep that one ready. It works. Lord, save me. And immediately, look at that, immediately, Yeshua stretched out his hand and caught him. 
He's holding him by the hand, looking him right in the eye. And he asks a question. Of course, Peter had the other question. If it's you, well, now he sees who it is. Yeshua's saying, I have a question for you, Peter. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? He had enough faith to let go. He was walking on the water. Why did you doubt? You almost, you almost made it. You could have done it. Look what fear does. And again, there's no good answer for that. No good answer. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. <laughs> we're back to the square one again. Okay, we're going to row, row again. And those who were in the boat, here, see, the, here's, the, here's some of the differences in part two. They're getting the picture. Okay, they came and worshipped him. Now, he didn't say, don't do that, I'm just a man. No, he received their worship. So you're only to worship God. The first question is, who is this? This time he's walking on the water, and with the word he stops the storm, and he gets in, in the boat, and they start, they fall down and worship him, and he receives their, their worship, receiving their worship. And they said, truly, you are the son of God. They're getting it. There's growth. Did you see some of the growth? In the first storm in part one, the question was, how is it you have no faith? No faith. But now as, oh, you have little faith. Oh, they're going. See, there's some. There's something there. So part two. Now, what, what are the differences in part one and part two? Other than that. In part one, Yeshua was in the boat. Maybe a lesson would be, you know, when he's in the boat, everything's going to be okay. In part two, he's not in the boat. But guess what? Everything's still going to be okay if he's not in the boat. Why? He's praying for you. What is he doing right now according to the book of Hebrews? He's interceding for us. He's praying for us. Those same principles still apply. This was illustrated with them. It's the same thing is applying to us. Yeshua is saying, you can trust me when I'm physically with you. You can trust me when I'm physically not with you. Because remember the Great Commission? They didn't have it yet. I am with you always. Oh. He's with us always. Oh, then we can always trust him. Yes. That is the point. That is the point. You can trust me either way. Their conclusion in part two was the right one. This is the Messiah, the Son of God. And they grew. Well, we have two miraculous feedings. Wouldn't be feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. Isn't one of those enough? You'd think. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. <clears throat> it wasn't enough. Dainu. <laughs> Luke 9. Some of you are starting to think of whether part ones and part twos are interesting. There's lots of them. Luke 9, verse 10. Okay, Luke 9, verse 10 for part one. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. And he received them. Look at that. He received them. He never turned them away. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. He never says no. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, send these people away. <laughs> you know, they're not quite getting the evangelistic concept just yet. Okay, we're hungry. Send them away. Okay? That they may go into the surrounding villages and towns and lodge and get provisions. We're in this place where you can't use, there's nothing to eat out here. And Yeshua said to them, you give them something to eat. 
excuse me, we just said, there's nothing to eat here. And they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we go and buy food, which there's nowhere to do that for all these people. Uh, John's account tells us that it was Andrew. He's always quiet. When, when Yeshua said, okay, how are we going to do this? Andrew said, well, there's one little kid here, the word's lad, a little boy that has a lunch. There's one. <laughs> then he goes, but what is that among so many? Philip began to count. He said it would take about 200 days wages to feed this crowd. He said, that's impossible. Don't tell Yeshua it's impossible, please. Don't do that. Okay, don't do that. So they only had uh, five loaves and two fish, and they had probably small loaves and small fish. So there were about 5,000 men, and other versions say, besides women and children, so like 25,000 people. That's a lot of people to, to feed out of one little lunch, right? He said to them, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so. Made them all sit down. And look at this next verse, very important. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. That's the, the structure is the loaves. He, he blessed the loaves, he broke the loaves. And gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they all ate. And they were all filled. And there were twelve baskets of leftover fragments. Oh, that's that bottom line. They all ate, they were all full, and there were 12 baskets left over, starting with five loaves and two fish. And he broke the bread and blessed it. Baruch Now, you know, that's the same prayer we use. Notice the differences. There was a part two. Part two. Why 12 baskets? You ever think of that? Why 12 baskets? Part two, Mark 8. And look at the differences. Mark 8, verse 1. This is the feeding of the 4,000. It's different in a different location. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Yeshua called his disciples and said, and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have not continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. Keep in mind, they've already done the 5,001. Okay? And if I send them away hungry their own, own homes, they will faint on the way. For some have come from a long, a long ways away. His disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Excuse me, they just did one a, minute, a little while ago. Remember, twelve baskets left over. Yeshua asked, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. Different number this time. That's a difference. Seven. Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, having blessed them. He, he said to set them also before them. And they ate and they were filled. And they took up seven large, large baskets of leftover fragments. Now we have seven. Not twelve this time, but seven. Those who had eaten were about 4,000. And then he sent them away. He, you know, this was just kind of common sense. He sent them away. Instead of hungry to faint along the way, he, he fed them. Okay, what, are the, what are the differences? 
Well, if you look at what happened before and in the other gospel accounts, the locations are different. The locations are different. This location is Gentile territory. The first one is Jewish territory. What, what are the differences besides the number you start with? Did you notice very subtly that when he gave the blessing in the Jewish side, he, blessed the, he broke the bread and blessed the bread, not the fish? Why? Because if you're Jewish, that's what you do. The blessing of the breaking of the bread is the blessing of, the, of everything. But with the, in the Gentile side, what did he bless? Both. Why? Well, they didn't understand the Jewish concept, what that meant. So just to make sure they understood he's thankful for both, he blesses both. That's a good lesson for us, too, by the way. If you go to a Gentile's house, don't say, well, that's not how you do it. You know, <laughs> any way you want to pray is fine, as long as you pray. But uh, the, the blessings were different. He accommodated the people that were there. So they wouldn't question, are you thankful for the fish? Of course I am. So he, he, he returned thanks. Why seven? Okay, the Twelve baskets, you can figure it out. Twelve tribes of Israel. It's a, it's, a, it's a picture of Israel. He's the Messiah of Israel. He's doing this for the people of Israel. Great, big, nice picture. Why seven? Why seven in Gentile territory? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. There's other verses for this, but I'll just give you one. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Um, Deuteronomy 7. First one. Okay. De- Deuteronomy, you know, the, the rereading of, of Torah. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. There's the seven Gentile nations that Joshua dispossessed. Okay? What's he saying to those seven Gentile nations? I'm your Messiah too. Okay, I'm the Messiah for everybody. I'm not leaving you guys out. The land belongs to Jewish people, but I belong to all of you. So the picture, he fed them the same, but the picture was, I'm your Messiah as well. Seven Gentile, I was in Gentile territory. He's Messiah for all people. Isn't this easy to do? When you start just looking at the subtle differences, if you have some background, you can go, I see all this. Uh, what about the miraculous catches of fish? There are two. Luke chapter 5. Go to Luke 5. You just had a Bible study, people are going to think you're really smart. You, how much you study. You just get, get some principles down. It's pretty easy to pick up some of this stuff. It's really fun, too. Luke 5. All right, verse 1. This is a real good one. My temptation is to go too deep on this, but I won't. So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God. Hallelujah. Look at that. They wanted to hear the word of God. He stood by the lake of Gennesaret, another name for the Sea of Galilee, and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. They're, They're done. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's. It's Peter's fishing boat and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down to the position of teaching of a rabbi and taught the multitudes from the boat. So they were on the shore. He's out in the cove a little ways, 
so he can, you know, it's a little, little theater kind of a thing. And when he had stopped speaking, by the way, the, his teaching isn't recorded, but the other stuff is, because that's what's important for, for us, for Peter. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, it's his boat, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said, excuse me, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Okay, is there sarcasm there again? Sarcasm again? Now it's it's kind of like this. Peter saying, "Excuse me, I'm the fisherman, you're the rabbi. I this is my boat, this is my lake, I, this is my business. I know all about this. You know all about Torah. Let's let's, let's be in our areas of expertise, okay?" Okay, I know all about fishing and you don't. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the next line is nice. It says, nevertheless, at your word, I will let the net down. I think it was kind of like this. Yeshua said to Peter, go out a little bit and put the nets down for a catch. Peter's looking at him. He's saying, excuse me, Lord, we've been here all night and caught nothing. I think the eye contact is piercing from Yeshua. It's like, did you hear what I said? It's like, and he's not saying anything else. It's like, you know, moms can do this with their, with their kids. When my mom said something, and I tried to worm out of it, she would, you know, that, I was like, it was like, okay. He was looking, that look. Nevertheless, at your word, but I'm going to prove you wrong. I'll show you, there's no fish here. At your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. Now they got another problem. The net's breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both of the boats. He doesn't know much about fishing, huh? <laughs> okay. So they both began to sink, not because of the storm, but because of too many fish this time. You ever notice that sometimes God's miracles are like overkill? He doesn't give you enough. He gives you way over enough. Okay. It's, it's like they're sinking because there's so many. It's like... See, that's the kind of prayer I want to pray for you for your businesses. Now, you don't make the, you don't catch the, your limit. It, the boat's going to sink because you're catching fish for other, other people, okay? It's, it's, okay, Simon, who knew everything about fishing, when Simon saw it, he fell down at Yeshua's knees. Oh, that's where he should have been in the first place. And he said, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all, he was, he was moved by this. He's never seen anything like this. And all with him were astonished at the, at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. They were all partners. And Yeshua said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch men. That's an important line, and the next one's important too. For when they had brought their boats to, to land, they forsook all and followed him. They forsook all and followed him. Really good day of fishing. Okay, they're last. Really good day of fishing. They forsook, that was wealth. They forsook all and followed him. How'd they get that fish anyway? Because of him. Because of him. Okay, well, he, he may be, Peter may be a really good fisherman. But Yeshua is Lord of the fish. He's Lord of the fish. 
the lesson, when Yeshua tells you to do something, it pays to do what he says. Even if, you know, I've, I've been working all night, Lord, let down your net. But I've been working, there are no fish out here. Let down your net. If Yeshua tells you something, do it. To Peter, he says, from now on, you're going to catch men. From now on, you're going to catch men. They forsook all. They followed him. Part 2, John chapter 21. This one gets emotional. John 21, verse 1. This is after the resurrection. Peter had some problems, didn't he? After these things, Yeshua showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Which, uh, and in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas, uh, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. He's going back to his old job. Okay, That's not the job he's supposed to be doing. He's, he's going back to his old job. I'm going fishing. They said, we're going to go with you. They went out and immediately got into the boat. And what happens when you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing? And that night they caught nothing. Maybe I'm doing something I'm not supposed to be doing because that happens to me every time I go fishing. If you want a, if you want a biblical experience in fishing, take me with you. We will catch nothing. All right? I'm really consistent on that. Susan throws the line in, she gets the big one. I go, <laughs> That's not the way, that's the wrong kind of hook. Never mind, do what you want. You're catching the fish. They caught nothing. But when morning had not come, time of day, when morning had not come, Yeshua stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Yeshua. He said to them, Hey, have you, did you catch any fish? You ever had that happen? You're out in the boat and some guy on the shore hollers at you. Hey, did you catch any fish? And you go, No. They said, No. <laughs> that's what they said. Verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, who would, who would tell you to do that, right? So they did it. What, what do you have to lose? And now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Yeshua loved said to Peter, it's John, he said, that's the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, plunged into the sea. He jumped in the water. But the other disciples came in the, in the little boat. That's the little boat. They were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. It's, a, it's called a drag net. This is a, a, a terminology for a certain kind of net, for a certain kind of fish in a certain location. It's very, very uh, uh, precise. And legend has it correct of where this is. Verse 9. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Yeshua had prepared a meal for them. Hmm. Then he said, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish. Notice in the feeding of the multitudes, they were small fish. Full of large fish, 153. They counted them. Why did they count them? Because this is impossible. But we counted them. It was 153 large fish. And the net was not broken this time. He says, come and eat. And they don't want to talk. Peter doesn't want to talk. So what's going on here? What are the differences here? Catch anything? No. They had forsaken all. 
and followed him. What had just happened? The reverse. They all forsook him in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a reversal. They went back to their old jobs, their former life. But it didn't work. You know why? Because what Paul said about some of you, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. If God has called you, he doesn't take it back. You may have to work through a problem, but he doesn't take it back. He called Peter, the calling is, is still there. You've been called to catch men. He had to talk to Peter. He gave Peter denied him three times. Yeshua gives him three chances of redemption to say he loves him. And every time he says that, he affirms, feed my sheep. That's being a teacher. Feed my sheep. Feed my, my sheep. Feed my sheep. He reaffirms the calling on his life. You're, I called you to catch men. Now, before I said their last day of fishing was their best, this was their last day of fishing, and it was really their best. 153 large fish, but no more fishing. Because he said, he's saying, the calling on your life is intact. Is intact. In about 40 days, we, we're counting the Omer, in about 40 days they're going to start to catch men. At the temple at the appointed time, Acts chapter 2, the harvest will begin. You know, and if you stay in the boat, you're, you're going to miss it. You're going to be there because you have a message. I mean, you've seen me alive. That's your message. I'm alive. That was his message. In verse 19, he reaffirmed the initial calling from the beginning. He walked the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and he said to Peter, follow me. In verse 19, he says it again, follow me. And you know what? That is so simple. But how many people follow other stuff? And they follow this and that and this and that and who and then what? Follow, he said, follow me. Follow me. That's our message to other people. Follow him. Follow him. Listen to him. Do what he says. That call is still intact for you. The invitation to discipleship is simple. Follow me. Follow me. When you look at the similarities and yet the differences, you put them together and you get the reason we have the two parts. It's all through Scripture. Can you think of other, other ones? I'm out of time. I'm going to just give you a, a verbal little list and you can say, oh yeah, I see that. Uh, what about the, the teaching on the fig tree? Two parts. Remember that? Part one, part two. It was a contrast. Uh, did you sure ever have any one-on-one conversations with people? Two. Who? Nicodemus. And what was the other one? The woman at the well. What's the lesson? Extreme to extreme. He met in private with a Supreme Court justice. That's a big deal. But the longest conversation he ever had was with a woman, a Samaritan, who was living with a man, not her husband, who had been divorced several times. In other words, the most unlikely person that he took time out to, to love. Extreme to extreme, part one, part two. I haven't come just for the Supreme Court. I came for Samaritan women who are having some problems with morals right now. But you know what? She's going to get over it because I'm going to forgive her. Just like Nicodemus is going to be born again because he asked that question, all right? We've recently talked about the two cleansings of the temple. There were two. It's the beginning at the end of his ministry. Many of these things are at the beginning at the end of his ministry. There were two anointings by women at the beginning at the end of his ministry. When you, when you read those, you'll see what we just have been doing. You'll go, oh yeah, I see the part two and what that means. It's easy to do. Uh, do you know that? <laughs> okay, trick question. How many people did Yeshua spit on? He spit on two blind men. 
We only talk about one. But there were two. There were two. Why two? You read the stories, you'll go, okay, I, I get that. I get it. There were healings in two parts. A synagogue president, a Roman centurion. The synagogue president, he took him with him into the room. The centurion servant, the centurion said, you don't even have to come to my house. You can do it from here. Again, same thing as in the boat. Yeshua can heal when he's not in the house. And he commended his faith for, for that. The casting out of the demons. We have several in, in two parts uh, in that balance. And, then, and, and, and again, the, the lessons out of each one. It's a storm. What's the, what's the initial lesson? The question, who is this that with a word can stop a storm? Who is this? Who is this that, that tells us to, to sit down and with one little boy's legs he feeds 25,000 people and has 12 baskets left over? Who can do this? Who, we were fishing, you know, we, all these fish, we, we didn't catch any all night. He goes out and in one minute we have all these big fish. Who is Lord over the fish? Who can do this? Who heals the blind, the lame? Who has power over sickness? Hmm, let's see, okay, who, who is it? Hmm? Who has power over death? Who raises the dead? There's two parts to that one. Um, and then he began to say things like, your sins are forgiven. It's like, excuse me. You know, the only person that has power to forgive sin would be God. Yeshua said, your sins are forgiven. And to show you, stand up and pick up your bed and walk. And you see, you walk through and you come to a conclusion. There's only one. He's the Messiah. He's God in the flesh. It's Yeshua. That's part two. End of the story. There's only one answer. Only one. And that call to discipleship is still there. If he said to you, follow me, and you said, I will, it's still there. May have been short-circuited, derailed, or whatever, but get back on track. Because you're not finished. He's not finished with you. Follow me. Let's all stand. Thank you, Lord, that with this simple tool, we can see so many teachings in the scripture that we can help others understand because of the part two and the differences, the, the, the subtle variations from a Jewish perspective brings life and the depth. And, and, and so many times this that Yeshua has come for everyone. For the rich, for the poor, for the Samaritan, uh, other Gentiles, for the Jewish leadership, for the common person, for the fisherman, for the tax collector. He's come for us. He offers forgiveness of sin. He offers healing. He offers restoration. I thank you for that conversation with Peter. For he simply allowed Peter three times to work through his three denials. And he said, you know what, that calling? Peter, how you feel right now is good enough for me. I'm going to use you at Shavuot. You're going to change the world. Thank you, Lord, that you can take people like us who simply follow you and use us to change the world. Thank you. In Yeshua's name. Amen.